Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. (laughs) Hello. And welcome. To Historically Really Good Friends. A spooky, spooky queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femlo. And welcome back to episode two of two, week two of two of our Halloween (laughs) special. Happy Halloween week two. You can never have too many Halloween lead up weeks. All of October... Halloween. Sure, all of September. I mean, some of August, maybe. Some of us have been celebrating for months at this point. I mean... Yeah, whenever you want. Just, it's Halloween now. Absolutely. We talked a lot about Halloween traditions and fall traditions last week in Rachel's episode where we discussed the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. If you want to go listen to that one first, get in the Halloween spirit. Not the costume store, Spirit Halloween. Get into a spirit. Get into a Spirit Halloween store, buy a costume, come back, listen to Rachel's episode, then listen to this episode where I'm going to be telling a story, just so you're really in the mood. Yeah, you really must be. Since last week's episode, I got to thinking about other horror movies because we kind of touched on those and i remember jared and you let me know if you remember this okay a movie that i suppose would be considered a horror movie or supposed to be a horror movie if it's meant to be taken seriously that we watched in high school do you know to what i am referring you gotta give me i think one more clue Okay, there's a nuclear accident power plant involved, maybe? No, my brain, the wheels in my brain are turning so hard and they are coming up with nothing. It's like another sort of cult classic, cult lore movie. That's a joke. It's definitely, it's got to be a joke. It could not have been written as a serious movie. Uh Okay, it's Teeth. Do you remember this experience that we shared? Is that the one Were about you the here vagina? For this ex- it's, it is. It is the no, one about I the wasn't vagina. There. I wasn't there for oh, that. No. Okay, so it was the rest of our class. Uh-huh. Not like big, cl- like f- f- 10 of us, I guess, 15 right. of us. We had a small. Okay, so never mind. We did not share that experience together. But no. Teeth, I've been thinking about it a lot since talking about horror movies because uh-huh. it is, I guess, a horror movie sort of about a girl who... It has some kind of nuclear radiation and ends up mm-hmm. having teeth in her vagina and she mm-hmm. like chomps off penises or whatever goes in her vagina, I guess. She chomps Is it off. like a little shop of horrors moment? Like it like it needs to be fed, or is it like it's just like an issue that she deals with? No, it's sort of just like an issue. It's sort of like, ugh, oh, this is a nuisance. Oh, uh, okay. Well, okay, so if you don't want to hear any spoilers, go ahead and skip ahead. But how does the movie end? Do you remember? I don't remember. Oh, wow. I think, honestly, um, and I've never admitted this to anyone because I think I lied about it. Mm-hmm. I think when we started watching that movie, I had to get picked up early because I found <laughs> out my sister had lice and I couldn't be around 
anyone else. Is that a genuine excuse or that's why you left? You told everybody No, 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 no. I left because I found out my sister had lice. My parents called me, so I did not finish the movie, but I did not tell everyone else at the party that's why I was leaving. I made up a different excuse because Uh I didn't want them to think I gave them all lice. I did not, by the way. No one else got lice. I did Did not have have lice. lice. I did not. I had lice. My sister gave me lice before that time. Okay, well. But... I didn't have lice at this juncture, but so maybe that was its own horror movie. So I do not know how the movie ended. I just know how it began. Wow. Okay. Maybe we'll, maybe you and I will have to watch it. Come back next week. There you go. Talk about viewing party. Viewing party on the pod. Perfect. Subscribe to our Patreon that doesn't exist and we'll watch Teeth. <laughs> Together. Perfect. <laughs> That'll I be our one idea. and only Patreon event. And then after right, that, it, it shuts down. One hit Patreon wonders. Absolutely. Well, Rachel, yes. because you said you were thinking more about scary things, horror mm-hmm. from from last week, I also did the same thing and I put together a list of Ooh. Halloween and Halloween adjacent concepts, things, nouns. And I'm okay. going to run through this list and I'm going to, so I'm going to say the word or the phrase or the thing. And then I want you to give your first reaction. It doesn't have to be long. Okay. It could be a word, a uh, a feeling okay. an emotion word associations exactly okay, okay. you tell me when you're ready i'm ready i'm okay. nervous but i'm ready okay jersey devil yeah mm. i um i need a specific word i just watched it at a tv show with the jersey devil <laughs> no just how do you feel about the jersey devil um scary okay great clinton road oh no heck no hell no fuck that okay if you don't know what clinton road is go ahead and look it up it's Mm -mm. in new jersey it's like i've cried okay great monster house the movie oh cute haven't seen oh it's a it's creepy it scarred me a little as a child oh okay then haunted houses no no nope no thank you okay scare actors um like monsters inc (laughs) Like like people that work in haunted houses or at like uh, amusement oh, parks um, that are like dressed up as zombies or clowns that are supposed to scare you. Honestly, hate them, but sort of the backbone of society. So keep it up. Great. Paranorman and more specifically the gay brother in Paranorman. Also never seen Paranorman, but keep it, also keep it up. Wow. Spoiler. So sorry. <laughs> Coraline. Um, haven't seen, but no thanks. Girl, what are you doing with your time? You need to watch. I don't like scary. scary (laughs) These are all children's movies. No, Coraline is freaky deaky. One of my favorites. Okay, pumpkin-shaped candies. Those little orange pumpkin-shaped candies. Icky, gross. Sorry to yuck your yum. No, thank you. You did because could be soap. Those are so good. Like Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't even care if they're wax. I love them. Cemeteries. Definitely zombies, but I hope they're cool. Okay. Grave robbers. Why? Mummies, question mark. Definitely real, no question. Mummies, exclamation point. I love a mummy. Great. Best costume that someone can wear for Halloween. Oh, you want me to name a costume? Uh Uh-huh. My costume that I wore when I was like 11. It's just a table of spaghetti and it's the best costume that someone can wear. (laughs) Anything a pun. If you can wear a pun as a costume, that's the best one. Okay, everyone check out our Instagram at Historically Really to see Rachel Craig as a table of spaghetti. Yeah. Favorite candy to get at the door? Ooh, Snickers. Oh. No, oh. peanut M&M's, peanut M&M's. 
the yellow bag or peanut butter? The ye- No, 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 the yellow bag, not the red bag. God, you're like 60. The monster mash. Fun, fun times. Good, good times. Iconic. It's fun. Right? It's fine. Okay. It's fine. Sticking your hand into a box of peeled grapes and being told that they're eyeballs. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. One of the only reasons I will have children is to do that with a bunch of the classroom Halloween event. Right. Yes. Okay. Black cats. I have one and I love. Very good luck. Scooby-Doo. Never, never seen. Dooby-dooby-dooby-doing it. Okay. I don't know. That was sure. So- interesting response that one episode from the sweet life of zach and cody <gasps> no no scary so scary. scary the seance one yes very scary yeah i used to very i used to turn off disney channel when that would come on very scary apple bobbing weird and i don't understand where that came from i would love to know more if anybody knows please let us know if and anybody then- knows let me know and then last but not least halloween decorations but more specifically blow up lawn decor Okay, Mm -hmm. two-parter. Blow up lawn decor, you really got to shock me with something good. Other Halloween decorations, love, uh, that's an all-year rent, do it, do it up, I love it. Make a haunted house in your front yard, that haunted house I will love. Mm -hmm. Spider webs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. love it. Lights, Mm -hmm. give me more. Okay, give me more as in they're not giving enough, or give me more lights, there's never enough. Give me more, there's just never enough. Wow. Love it. Iconic. Pumpkins, rotted mm-hmm. pumpkins. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you very much for playing my little silly Halloween game. I hope you are feeling in the spirit of Halloween. I am. I honestly brought back a lot of things for me, good and bad. So I've, I'm evened out, I'm neutral, and I'm ready okay. to go. I'm ready to hear your story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then let's just get into it then. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's get into my semi-long story today. Buckle in. This week, I'm going to be telling you about Carl Heinrich Ulrichs and his short story, Manor. The sources that I use this week are Carl Heinrich Ulrichs' Wikipedia page, Carl Heinrich Ulrichs' profile from Making Queer History, Overlooked No More, Carl Heinrich Ulrichs by Liam Stack for the New York Times, Carl Heinrich Ulrichs' profile for The Legacy Project, Project Gutenberg, and I referenced a thesis by Jonathan Taylor for the University of Alabama in Huntsville. So this is going to be kind of a three-part topic because I want to talk about the man, the myth, and the legend, literally. Okay. I was looking for Halloween topics and came across Carl, but then realized like how fascinating his life was, especially his work with like the general queer movement. But I will circle back and round it out with a Halloween connection in the end. So that's why I went through that list in our intro, because I really wanted to set the stage with, you know, Halloween. Because the beginning of the story is like, has nothing to do with Halloween, but we'll get back to it. We'll sandwich a little Halloween sandwich. Yeah, exactly. So some trigger warnings kind of right off the bat. There's some talk about sexual assault, and there's also some mentions of blood. So you've been warned. It's it's nothing too crazy. It very brief in both mentions, but they're in here. So Carl Heinrich Ulrichs is born on August 28th, 1825 in a village called Westerfeld in northwest Germany in the kingdom of Hanover, which then joins the German Confederacy. The German Confederacy is an association of 39 predominantly German-speaking countries in Central Europe as a replacement for the Holy Roman Empire, which dissolves only 19 years prior in 1806. Mm. Wow. Uh, Also, wow, did not know it was that recent. 
Right? Um, I didn't either. It lasted like 400 years. And then also I looked up, just because I wanted to put this into kind of perspective, I looked up when Mormons founded their religion, you know, the Church of Latin. With John Smith? Yeah, that was like 1830. So Carl is born five years before the... The, f- the LDS. The, the LDS was founded, which kind of is wild to me because that f- it always feels like religion is the oldest thing in the world. But like yeah. this man is older than than LDS. That is really interesting. I also love that that's what you picked to contextualize it. And actually it is helpful, but that's funny. A couple of things just from the first two sentences. I feel like every German person is named Carl, first of all. Absolutely. Also Hanover as in Snyder's of Hanover, the pretzels. Is that where it comes from? Is that where those pretzels come from? I don't know. I feel like pretzels are German. Let's pretend that they do. Okay. So he's yes. He is born before Mormonism and LDS exists, and Mm -hmm. also in the same town that potentially Snyder's of Hanover come from. Correct. Yes. Love it. Okay. So Carl is born into an upper middle class family that includes several Lutheran pastors, and some reports say that his father was a civil engineer, and some say that his father was actually a pastor. Either way, his father dies when Carl is 10. At a young age, Carl feels distinctly different from other boys, admitting his attraction to more feminine activities and clothing, such as the bright colors of military uniforms and women's dress. Carl has his first sexual experience with a man at the age of 14 when he's sexually abused by his riding instructor, and kind of what little else is known about Carl's childhood is that he studies the classics in school, meaning Greek and Latin, before beginning his studies of law and theology at the University of Göttingen. 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 I wrote it down and it still doesn't help. Göttingen. Göttingen. In the early 1840s. From 1846 to 1848, Carl studies history at Berlin University. After university, from 1849 to 1854, Carl puts his law degree to work and secures a prestigious position working for the Kingdom of Hanover's civil service. He begins his time as an administrative lawyer, but doesn't like the work, so he transfers to the court system around 1853 and becomes an assistant judge in the District Court of Hildesheim. While working in these legal, advising, and judiciary positions, Carl feels he's found his calling and really begins to feel accomplished in his life. It's during this time, too, that Carl really begins to become self-aware about his sexuality, kind of examining his identity and attraction to other men in a way that was uncommon for the time. However, it's this self-awareness that, in 1854, leads to Carl resigning from his position in the courts. Carl decides he would rather resign than face dismissal if he's ever blackmailed to be publicly outed. Mm. Rumors about his same-sex relationships, as well as the laws against public indecency, are becoming increasingly more and more threatening at the time. Mm -hmm. This resignation makes Carl more comfortable with his sexuality, though, now not having a job in the court he could be fired from or extorted by, and the more comfortable he is, the more vocal he becomes as well. And so in 1862, at the age of 37, Carl tells his friends and his family that he is an earning, a word he coins to describe a man who is attracted to other men. And as we know at this time, the common words we have nowadays to describe sex, sexuality, and gender don't exist. And so Carl creates this very early word for gay men. The creation of this word, an earning, 
does two things. It separates the concepts of queerness and pedophilia, which at the time are often viewed as nearly identical, and it also removes the separation between the act and the person. So it creates more of an identity. It's not just homosexual acts. It's a person that's, you know, a queer man, a homosexual that also does these things. And so this is where Carl kind of begins his career as a campaigner for sexual reform. He begins writing under the pseudonym Numa Numantius and writes five collective essays in the Studies on the Riddle of Male-Male Love, which explains this same-sex love as natural and biological. In these essays and further writings, he coins various terms to describe sexualities. Earnings, for those who we would now call gay men. Erendin, to refer to people who we would now call lesbians. Dianings for heterosexuals, and uranodianism for bisexuals. As you can tell, these words don't catch on, really. <laughs> <laughs> we don't use them no. uh, all the time. Uh, what I was going to ask about those words, so are they, is that like a translation? Is he saying them in English? Is this what they were in German? So and- they are very close in German. So these are, I guess, what would be the English translations. They are very, very okay. similar. But these terms are inspired by his studies of the classics, including right. Plato's okay. Symposium, in which Uranus, mm-hmm. god of the heavens, acts as both father and mother to the goddess Aphrodite. Mm, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we should bring them back. An earning. I'm, no one's going to make earning happen. Well, I can't. I kind of like it. Maybe it's yearning because Uranus. I was going to say, and I, also yearning. I don't know. I like the the sound of that better because you yearn for someone or right. something. Right. But it's spelled U-R-N-I-N-G. So it is spelled like earning. And in earn. all of the, yeah, in all of the videos and resources I found, they said it earn but it would make more sense to me yearn for uranus where it's it's coming from you're right but like uranus uranus whatever uranus sure uranus and also there's that a so Mm -hmm. phonetically changes what the u is so i guess maybe it is then truly earning okay all right well either you're either you're earning it you're earning you're earning it or you're yearning for it. Sure. We'll, we'll say that that's it. Okay. I'm so sorry, <laughs> listener, if that confused you even more. But those are <laughs> kind of the four terms that he comes up with. And gotcha. in his further examinations and writings, Carl comes to the conclusion that men attracted to men are essentially born with a quote-unquote germ that makes them internally feminine, which is the first discussion we see about queerness and biology rather than queerness as a moral deviancy. And so the word germ, I feel like a lot of us nowadays are kind of like, ugh, like he's calling it like an illness or a sickness, but it's right. it's more so he's saying it's this part of the body that we're born with. It's just something inside that makes us variant rather than it's something that right. you're catching. Exactly. The words that we have now same words just completely different meaning right it sounds like it would almost translate of course like no one there wasn't the 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 genome the human genome that we understood how dna worked but it almost sounds like it's like there's a difference in dna rather than it being like a a parasitic relationship or an illness right (laughs) Right. which is just not 
how he's intending to mean it when he calls it a germ at all. I also find it so interesting, and it's come up so many times, about how sexuality and initial and still present, like, thoughts about sexuality are so dependent on like gender presentation and also gender identity as in like traits related to your sexuality also have to be gendered um and that I don't know it's just so interesting how even then and even in biological like first explanations those two are so inextricably linked right and I think that's what a lot of his work attempts to do he is trying to make a separation of you know these things are you know, one way or another. And right. I think he's he's more trying to say that we are affected by things that we experience in society that are gendered, that mm-hmm. are labeled, but because we are born biologically in a certain way, we're more attracted to those things or we relate right. more to those things. And it's less of a sexual act. It's less of like a predatory act. And it's more of just right. who we are. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And that seems so innovative for its time. Right, for the early to mid 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so Carl continues to write a great deal on the topic of sexuality and sexology constantly getting in trouble with the law, but always for his writings and public statements rather than any sexual offenses. In the 1860s, he's the author of plenty of books and pamphlets, and his books are confiscated and banned by the police in Saxony. Later, this happens again in Berlin, and then later again in Prussia. By 1864, Karl increasingly begins to correspond with other earnings, both by direct contact and by correspondence with his readers of his first publications. And it's actually through these writings to other gay men that he discovers an expansive range of sexualities, such as bisexuality. So he has these people being like, well, there's also men who are sexually attracted to women, or there's men who are sexually attracted to women, but sensually attracted to men and so he Mm -hmm. starts to kind of form these ideas that what he thought was just straight or gay now there's so many different varieties of sexuality right i think even that is so interesting that it wasn't he didn't immediately dismiss that because i think very very early and not that he was a scholar like by trade obviously this was just sort of something he was attempting to learn about and and explain but I feel like a lot of early ideas about sexuality immediately dismiss anything other than like even a sex binary of or or sexuality sex meaning the act of having sex right that there's this straight or gay again Mm -hmm. because everything was so binary and that he was willing to sort of recognize and also still apply those same concepts to people outside Mm -hmm. of that straight or gay label right and i think a lot of that has to do with his experiences of feeling Mm -hmm. othered as a child because he's like Well, if I felt this way and I felt different and I knew I was different, then who am I to say that other people aren't feeling differently from how I was feeling different? So I think he is a lot more open, whereas people that are maybe more scientific are like, well, clearly not. Like, it's either this or this. There cannot be any other way. Yeah. And I love that. But I think even that type of compassion is sort of revolutionary because, you know, you see people today who can say well, I had some kind of othering experience. I was marginalized in some way, but I do not 
extend that same sympathy to anyone else. So I still think that that concept of being like, I felt othered and I want to make sure that I'm being inclusive of other people's experiences is still like a pretty extraordinary concept. And it's so like, I don't know, he seems so cool. Yeah, he is. He like truly all of his work and all of his writings are just like trying to like make a positive difference. And he's just so open. Yeah, he is Mm -hmm. really incredible. But so these letters with other earnings are also confiscated by the government. And when Prussia annexes his part of Germany in 1866, he's imprisoned for opposing Prussian rule, which he's very vocal about in his writings. Mm. When he's released from prison, Karl decides that he has to double down on his advocacy work. And so on August 29th, 1867, just want to let that sink in, 1867, Carl Heinrich Ulrichs becomes the first queer person to speak out publicly in defense of queerness. He pleads with the Congress of German jurists in Munich, urging them to repeal anti-homosexual laws. It's reported that his speech is shouted down, which I had no idea what that means, so I, I looked it up. And what I found is it means that there are people, maybe the jurists, maybe a crowd, who shout so loudly while Carl attempts to give his speech that he's almost completely unable to be heard. So people are yeah. so upset with this speech that he's trying to give that they're just yelling at him and he's just talking through it. Like he's just charging right. ahead. This attempt is sort of fruitless, but definitely mm-hmm. not understated in how progressive and groundbreaking it is. For most people, this is the first time that they've heard queerness spoken about in a positive light. And I would also like to add that it's not like Carl Heinrich Ulrich is the first gay man, which a lot of people claim he is. But as you know, that's not true. People tend to live in a bubble, especially when you don't have the internet and you don't have these things and travel is not accessible. So he definitely was a revolutionary in his area in this part of Germany and I guess Prussia at this point. So he is very revolutionary for his time and location. That's not to discount all of the other people that have done things and said things and made progress way before him. Right. I feel like that comes up a lot um episodes that we talk about where the work is being done by other people that we may never be able to tell the story of and so it's important to know that like just because we hear one voice that's not the like reigning voice of the time or representative of every single person or experience like it's so wild to me that someone was like the first person to talk about queerness must be the first queer person. (laughs) Right. So it's like he, and this also may be that he was the first queer person to speak publicly in this area. There, there just may not be records of people speaking about this thing that was so morally deviant, you know? So it may just be that this is the first record we have in Northwest Germany. Yeah. I also think it's hard to separate ourselves from like a 24 hour news cycle, social media where we can know what's going on at any place in the world. Like this would, this speech would be broadcasted on like TV and so, or YouTube or fucking wherever. And so you would be able to, you would be more connected with what's going on globally. Whereas obviously at this time, like what, there was newspapers, a frigging printing press like no one was broadcasting this no No one was recording it and if they were broadcasting or printing or doing whatever 
by the time he got it or people in his area got it right mm-hmm. if it was coming from outside would have taken forever so it's like the timeline yeah. is not clear they were sending carrier pigeons with the news right. like i don't know what they were doing <laughs> but it wasn't quick no hell no so after this court appearance and this plea that doesn't really go how he is expecting it to Carl begins publishing his books under his own name as an earning apologist for the cause. Essentially, he's publicly recognizing his own sexuality. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, Carl is arrested then numerous times for being an advocate for queer rights, the acceptance, and the recognition of varied sexualities. In 1868, Austrian writer Carl Maria Kentbeny coins the words homosexual and heterosexual in a letter to Carl Ulrichs, which would catch on a lot quicker than Carl Ulrichs' <laughs> really complicated terms. Carl actively chooses not to use these new words and instead continues to use his own, which understandable. And a big part of this decision is that he resents that the suffix sexual is used, as most of his mm. work has been to expand the understanding of queerness to be seen beyond sexual acts. Right. Which again, I kind of love. I think right. that that is, I, I really have never thought about the implications of saying things like heterosexual or homosexual. And right. I do think that that's so interesting. Me too. And if it only wasn't earning and dying or whatever, yeah. you, you know, I'd try to bring it back. Right. Right. Like, let's modernize a little bit and try again. Right. Let's let's tinker with it. Let's see what we yeah. can come up with. Let's workshop it. Workshop it. Yeah. yeah. Let's wordsmith it. Yeah. And then get it out onto the floor. Let's get public opinion. <laughs> yeah. So in 1870, Carl publishes Araxes, A Call to Free the Nature Penal Law, in which he makes some incredibly modern points against anti-homosexual laws. He writes, quote, Sexual orientation is established by nature. Legislators have no right to persecute living creatures who are subject to those drives nature gave them. For the sheer love of persecution, legislators should give up hope of uprooting their Uranian sexual drive, for even the most powerful government is too weak against nature. Mm. And so he's basically saying, you can't govern people's sexuality. You might as well give up because this is a fight that you're not going to win. Right, right. It's it's an effort that's pointless because people are just going to do what they, you're just going to be spending so much time criminalizing it, but it's not going to change anything. Right. And so by 1872, the Prussian sodomy law known as paragraph 175 is adopted by all of the states of the new German empire, which is a crushing blow to Karl and all of his advocacy work. He sort of lives his life under this oppressive government until 1879 when he publishes his 12th and final book titled, quote, Research on the Riddle of Man, Manly Love. He then crosses the Alps by foot and settles in Italy where his public advocacy for earnings ceases. He lives the rest of his life editing a small Latin language literary journal before passing away on July 14th, 1895 at the age of 69. In his late life, Carl writes what I think is a great summation of his life and work, writing, quote, Until my dying day, I will look back with pride that I found the courage to come face to face in battle against the specter, which, for time immemorial, has been injecting poison into me and into men of my nature. Many have been driven to suicide because all their happiness in life was tainted. Indeed, 
I am proud that I found the courage to deal the initial blow to the hydra of public contempt. End quote. Wow. And just a little fun fact to wrap up Carl's biography before moving into the next part. Magnus Hirschfeld, not yet a historically really good friend, although referenced a few times, thoroughly references Carl in his own sexology book, The Homosexuality of Men and Women in 1914. Which is like wow. pretty cool that he's referencing Carl, who none cool. of us know about, but everyone pretty, you know, has at least heard the name Magnus Hirschfeld. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting. I've never heard about his story or his writing, but maybe that's because I'm, you're going to tell us about it and I'm, it sounds a little scary. Anything with the manor <laughs> in it could sound scary, but that quote like really impacted me. That sort of ending quote that you gave us that, that Carl also just brushing over the fact that he just fucking walked to Italy yeah. was like, you fuck this shit. I'm going to go retire in peace kids see ya and he they did say that he died as like a poor beggar kind of that he didn't but it seems like that was a little maybe hyperbolized it seems like he kind of lived Mm -hmm. just like a fine life in italy as an old man and then passed away but i don't really know wow well thanks for giving us the biography i'm interested to see how this all translates into his writing but he does sound really amazing and i can't believe i'm just hearing about it now right so Now this is kind of where the Halloween part comes into this story. It's shockingly hard to find an exact year for this, but sometime around 1885, Carl writes a book in German with the title Sailor Stories and Poems. And it's a book of short stories and poems that surround sailors, as the title (laughs) suggests. And in this book of short stories and poems that are about sailors, there's a story called Manor. It's written in German, but there's a version on Project Gutenberg that you can translate into English. And we Mm -hmm. love Project Gutenberg, but be aware that translating the German was a lot harder than I realized. So you have to kind of do like some computer magic on it so that it's translated into English. You can Google that, though. This is not like a computer tutorial podcast. Okay. I don't. No, sorry. We cannot help you. No. We cannot help you. You got it. Just listen to us. Or figure it out. (laughs) Truly. So it's pretty short, but if you don't have an interest in reading it, maybe I'll do a bonus episode where I read the story as it's written. But I'm going to kind of tell you, yeah, Patreon exclusive. (laughs) But I'm going to kind of tell you an abridged version of Manor right now. Okay. And again, right at the top, trigger warning for blood, uh, gore, death. It's nothing too crazy. It's all very light, but it exists and it's there. All right. Okay, here we go. So this is Manor by Carl Heinrich Ulrichs. And obviously I'm not reading like his word for word. This is a this is this is a summation, essentially. Okay. One day, off the coast of the Faroe Islands, a fifteen year old boy named Har and his father go fishing, but their boat is overturned after a storm arises. A 19-year-old young man witnesses this from one of the island shores and rescues Har from the freezing water. Har's father, however, washes up on the shore, dead. Har becomes friends with this 19-year-old named Manor, and the two become incredibly close. By the time summer rolls around, the boys spend their nights together in the forest or skinny-dipping at the beach. Manor puts his arm around Har, calling him my boy, and they talk for hours, making plans. 
Whenever a whaling boat comes around, both boys talk about wanting to go. On nights when Manor finishes working too late and can't make it to Har before sundown, Manor sneaks to the lilac bush outside of Har's window. Har wakes up and steals out the window to Manor, and the two feel this great desire to be with each other. Almost from the beginning, they're deeply in love. At some point in the late summer, a whaling ship comes to their island, and Manor joins the crew instantly. Har attempts to join, but his mother begs him not to, as the sea has already taken Har's father from her, and she can't bear him being taken to. And so, Har stays, and Manor goes. A few months pass, and winter is finally rolling around. One morning, Har is standing on a cliff, looking out over the shoreline when he sees the same whaling boat returning home. But that day is stormy, and the waves throw the boat into the reefs of the island, capsizing the boat in front of Har's eyes. He watches as castaways fight the waves, struggling to survive. One of the sailors he watches grabs onto a plank and then is sucked into a whirlpool, and that sailor is Manor. Islanders drag the sailors' bodies ashore, and finally, Har sees Manor's body being brought onto the beach. He throws himself onto Manor's body, sobbing, exclaiming that he must see Manor again, savoring this last blissful embrace for as long as he can. The corpses are then brought across the sound and buried. That night, Har is inconsolable and struggles to fall asleep. He's finally dozing off around midnight, but is quickly awoken by the lilac bushes outside of his window rustling. Har's window opens and a figure climbs inside, and Har recognizes the figure immediately to be Manor. Manor is completely drenched, dripping water everywhere, but he climbs into Har's bed and the two share a kiss. Manor is icy cold. But shortly after he arrives, he stands, sighs, and leaves. The next night, Manor returns, freezing like the day before, but more demanding this time. He wraps Har in his arms, kisses his cheeks and mouth, and Har's heart begins to pound at the intimate embrace. And then, Manor lays his head on Har's pounding chest. Slowly, Manor's lips begin to search for Har's nipple, and he begins to essentially suckle on Har's chest, but then it turns more drastic, and Har feels like Manor is gorging himself on Har. But then, Manor leaves. And so, for the next few nights, Manor returns in the darkness and the boys embrace. Manor then sucks at Har's chest. Sometimes in the morning, Har finds a small droplet of blood on his nipple, which he nonchalantly wipes away without a second thought. After a consistent schedule of Manor appearing in the dead of night, Har notices that Manor doesn't come when there's a full moon. He also recalls an old Norse belief that young people who have died bitterly in the prime of their lives are often given powers beyond the grave to resurrect, but with the great need for blood and warmth. And so, Har concludes that his love is actually undead and a vampire. But Har doesn't care. He's tortured all day, having to wait for night to come. He impatiently waits for the embrace of Manor. After 12 days, Har's mother notices that he's becoming incredibly pale, but he hides the truth from her. 
And so she visits an old wise woman who throws rune sticks and sees that, quote, the dead visit him. Har's mother confronts him and he weeps, telling her of Manor's visits and confides in her his love for Manor. So Har's mother gathers the village elders and they travel to the cemetery where Manor's body is buried and they demand to look into Manor's grave to see if he's there or not. They exhume the grave and Har throws himself onto Manor's body, which is still inside, begging for him to wake up. They notice, however, that Manor looks fresher than usual, more youthful than a dead person should. They then look to Har, who is pale and weak. And to stop him from leaving his grave, an axeman drives a large stake through Manor's chest. And so that night, Har cries and cries, tired and listless. But then, Har hears the branches of the lilac bush rustling, and there in front of him, climbing through his window, is Manor, with an enormous wound in his chest. This time, he's more demanding and thirsting than ever before, and so he drinks from Har while Har's mother fearfully listens from the other room. The next morning, Har's mother confronts the boy who reveals Manor returned to the night before. And so, for a second time, the boy, his mother, and villagers row across the sound to Manor's grave. When they open the casket, they find that Manor is still there, but no longer with the stake in his chest. So, on the advice of the wise woman, they cut a stake twice as thick at the top than at the bottom, so it looks like a nail with a head, and they drive it into Manor yet again this time more firmly, with no possibility of Manor escaping. And that night, Har lies in his bed, waiting for Manor, listening to the bush outside. Yet nothing rustles, and nobody comes. One morning after Manor's visits stop, Har weakly tells his mother he must die. He's been drained so completely by Manor that he can't get out of bed, but he promises his mother that indeed he saw Manor again, and that they left the house together and they talked and they must be together. Har claims he can't live without Manor. And so Har's mother weeps over him, fearing for her son and the apparitions he thinks he's seeing. As night falls, Har begs his mother to put him in Manor's grave upon his death and to pull the stake from his chest. She promises him with a handshake and a kiss. And then, midnight comes, and Har's features soften. His head is raised as if listening. He looks to the window with shining eyes and whispers, Look, mother, here he comes. And then his eyes break, and he slumps back on his pillows and falls asleep for the last time. And like she promises, Har's mother did as he asked. And that's the story manner by Carl Heinrich Ulrich. I had so many guesses as to what was going to happen throughout uh-huh. the story. First of all, very good short story. I was enthralled. Love that Norse vampires not only want blood, but like cuddles. Like, they just they're like, I need kisses. the intimacy. Like, I need blood. But I also like need, like, do you, I need you to hold me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He still feels like and, a little boy. And I love that. Yeah. But I also do think it is so interesting that and I know you're going to tell us more about this or I hope you're going to tell us more about this mm-hmm. but that someone was so was writing so publicly about an intimate relationship between two young men slash vampires zombies 
let's just get into the next part. It's the last part of the story. I'll address this. I just want to incredibly briefly talk about vampires and their inherent queerness and kind of how it relates to man. Mm -hmm. Because it's incredibly fascinating to me that Carl chose to write about vampirism and love in a book dedicated to sailor stories. The sailing part is like barely talked about. Mm -hmm. So vampires have been around as a concept in some fashion since, you know, as early as the Middle Ages, but more so as a lesson to bury and respect the dead rather than a bloodthirsty monster. But then as we get into the Renaissance period, as the bubonic plague is making its rounds, we see the vampire transform into a harbinger of illness and death. Mm -hmm. And so it begins to take on more of an evil cautionary tale aspect. And then hundreds of years down the line, as we step into the 19th century, there's a shift in writing from a vampire being an aggressor, from going out and finding its prey, to an elusive, enticing monster attracting its victims to them. Right, because vampires are sexy. <laughs> right, they are sexy and cool and ooh, how They're could mysterious. you? Right, how could you resist a vampire? Right, right. And so, in the cases of Carmilla, an 1872 novel featuring a lesbian vampire, which predates Dracula by about 26 years, queer desires are brought to the surface of the story and force the characters to deal with this queer, untethered desire. Yes, by this time, the vampire is still representing death and the undead, but it also represents self-containment. You know, having to sneak around in the dead of night so no one knows who you are. Having these homoerotic moments, such as in Manor, when two people of the same sex are having this prolonged skin-to-skin contact. Mm -hmm. Being feared of who or what you are. Afraid that if other people are bit, they too will become a vampire. If you engage with a queer person, you too will become queer. Right, mm-hmm. so it's the fears of society kind of taking form in this monster, and right. the vampire transforms into the other, representing those outside of mainstream society. You know, fear the other, mm-hmm. fear the thing that authors and people at the time fear the most sexuality. And while most of the queer vampire stories from the 19th century read as a predatory act by the sexually distressed, you know, and I'm using air quotes here. Mm-hmm. I don't believe this is what Carl intended to do. His life's work was to separate predators and queer people, which are not one Mm -hmm. and the same. I believe this story was to show that the vampire, the other, is nothing to fear. That misunderstanding comes from the one that projects its fear onto it. So Mm -hmm. Par's mother is terrified of manor, is terrified of this thing. She's the one that wants the stake driven into his chest. But Har is like, no, 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 we're good. Yes, it may be draining me, but I'm also in love with him and I'm fine. And this is, I'm, right. I want this to happen. So like I was saying, sure, Manor was a vampire and draining blood from Har. But there's like this tenderness to their interactions and a real love before Manor even dies. Right. It's like a Halloween, like you never would say that in Romeo and Juliet, where you have two characters who are so willing to sacrifice themselves for the love of the other. Whereas this is telling a condensed, very similar story, but obviously with the implementation of like an evil creature or like evil quote unquote. And so it is that same sort of love of young people wanting Mm -hmm. to just tunnel vision be with that one person right 
Exactly. So it still is a cautionary tale, but at the same time, it's saying like this vampire is not killing the entire village and coming out. It's going right to Har and only wanting to be with Har and it's using Har as a resource to stay alive so they too can be together. Right. It's an experience. It's a story about intimacy rather than like devilish vampire behavior. Right. And both queer people and vampires have been viewed as monsters and those to be feared. But as we've seen in the more recent years, as vampires have entered the mainstream of pop culture, we realize that they aren't really anything other than a metaphorical embodiment of one's biggest fears, right? They're not actually danger or a threat. Right. And so both queer people and vampires have existed for hundreds and thousands of years and will continue to exist no matter how hard people try to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And that is the long story of Carl Heinrich Ulrichs, his short story manner, and the inherent queerness of vampirism. I love it. Thank you for putting so much work into weaving this tale for us today. Of it was course, great. Of course, I had to bring my A-game for Halloween. I had to leave you with a little something spooky. Maybe, like I said, we'll do a bonus episode where I read the actual story of Manor. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, who knows? We'll see. But now I kind of, like, I'm going to tell this story to everyone I see dressed as a vampire for Halloween now. And I hope maybe we've got some vampires, vampire listeners who are going to be vampires for Halloween. Ooh. Usually I think it's a lame costume, but now perspective change. Absolutely. And just scream, gay vampire, Adam, as they walk by. I will. If a child comes to I your will. door. So are you a gay vampire or are you a lame vampire? Right, right. Is this a last minute costume Mm -hmm. or is this, do you recognize the queer undertones of what you are representing? Mm -hmm. You must. Have a great rest of your night trick-or-treating. Have fun. Stay safe. (laughs) Have fun. (laughs) Bye. And see ya. Perfect. Thanks for tuning in to episode 35 of Historically Really Good Friends where we talked about 19th century queer advocacy. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes being a young vampire breastfeeding blood a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see the spooky photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. And be sure to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com or DM us right on Instagram. We hope to see you again next week and be safe this Halloween. Happy Happy Halloween. Halloween!